Number 8. Ephesians, 3rd quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting lesson 8 in the Ephesians quarter, Christ-shaped lives and spirit-inspired speech. Our moderator is going to be Dr. Daniel Duda. Our opening prayer will be by Karen. Dearest Father, we just want to praise you and thank you for the pure delight of your love that flows into our hearts every moment of our lives. And may we be filled with your love and joy and peace today so that we can in turn pour your love and joy and peace into the lives around us. Your love for us flows back to you in all of our praise, and we know it will surround us with kindness as we grow compassionate communities. And we're so grateful to you for setting in motion this wonderful flow of perfect love that casts out fears and transforms our hearts, our lives, our relationships, and our communities. And so today, as we study this lesson, we pray that you will open our minds to think about others as you do aware of their potential. And we pray that you will open our eyes to see others the way that you see them made in your image. And we pray that we will love them as you love them, generously, joyfully, and gracefully, so that they will come to know you too. And this is our prayer today and every day. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Karen. Welcome, everybody. And I'm glad to see you all and looking forward to a profitable lesson number eight. We are in the book of Ephesians, and we are in chapter 4. Now, you might remember that in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul gives certain theological understanding for this church in Ephesus and beyond, because as you remember, the letter to Ephesus is a circular letter, and they are supposed to read it in Laodicea, in Colossae, and the surrounding churches. And then we learned that in chapter 4, he goes into the practical consequences and the results of if this is the case that God has redeemed us in this way and this is what God has accomplished because of this cosmic reconciliation that Christ has accomplished on the cross there are certain consequences for our lives and in verse 1 it started I beseech you that you maintain unity and this lesson is dealing with verses 17 to 32 and our memory text is taken from verses 22 to 24. Notice that unusually it's from NIV. It doesn't happen very often. We will cover those ideas while we go through. And so verses 17 to 32. So you have the text that we are going to discuss in front of you. Now I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Mm -hmm. So then, putting away falsehood, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. 
Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Thank you. So can you see the connection between verse 1 and verse 17 in chapter 4? What is the connection there? Yes, Sean? There is at least the common link of exhortation, Yes, if nothing else. That's what jumps out at me is, is Paul is beginning to define the expectation of this new life. And because Christ has accomplished this cosmic reconciliation, the church is now a showcase for the world and the angels of a different type of unity. That was verses 1 to 16, and verse 17 shows that these consequences of what Christ accomplished go into the way people live. Now, it would be easy to think that the way to behave is a simply a matter of getting your body to do certain things and not to do certain things. And all of us could uh, give examples of being taught that good boys, good girls, good Christians, good Adventists, you name it, behave like this or don't behave like this. So what is it that Paul shows in verses 17 and further? Is Christianity, in essence, a matter of behavior or of something else? What is significant about verses 17 to 19? Livius? I was going to compare 1 and 17 and say that walking in a manner worthy of the calling means to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And it seems like maybe Paul was in this position as well. Like he's testifying that he also maybe was transformed by this thinking. And maybe as we continue from 17 on, it says in verse 17, in the futility of their minds. So something in our minds needs to be reset and changed. So that's an important thing that Christianity is in first and foremost not a matter of behavior because you get only outward compliance. It has something to do with the mind, whether the mind is futile or the mind is enlightened by the Holy Spirit, etc. Thank you, Olivius. Well said. Henry? It seems to me also that Paul is mentioning that this is not a theoretical knowledge. This is not just information that we are going to get new, but through the understanding of this gospel, of this that has happened through the work of Christ to make evident, empower us to go beyond the theory and allow that to transform our mindset, our attitude that will definitely be noticeable in the outward, but I'm not need to be focusing on the performance part because it's becoming from within. It's not just a theory. It is now something that is achievable to us, not because we have something new in ourselves, but what has been revealed that allows us to see that it is possible for us to not only do actions, but to live them because they are coming from within. Thank you to the gift of God through Christ. Okay, thank you. Lou? To me, it's just like the Ten Commandments. 
that say do this and don't do that. And apart from the Holy Spirit, they can be rules that we write down and feel good that we haven't violated those rules and all of that. It can be very self-serving. But with the Holy Spirit, I believe that it's a promise. Okay, thanks. And Terry? In these verses, I see these phrases, darkened in their understanding, hardness of heart, and lost all sensitivity. And to me, it seems like when someone doesn't practice understanding or is hardened in their heart and isn't sensitive to anyone or anything around them, they become very self-focused. And then that defeats the whole purpose of God's intent of community and caring about each other. And when someone is so self-focused, my guess is that it feels very confining and tight and tense. And when we're in community and when we're sensitive to one another and caring about one another, it loosens everything up and you can take a breath and you can breathe. And I just can't get rid of the idea that so much of all this comes down to how we treat each other. Yes. So Paul definitely longs to see the young churches changing their behavior. The pagan lifestyle is all around them. They're in Ephesus and in Asia Minor and Rome, all over the Roman Empire. But he knows there's no point of attacking the behavior because you are dealing with the symptoms. And that's why those important things that you mentioned, Terry, about thinking, futility of their thinking, darkened in their understanding, hardening of their hearts. And even in verse 19, they have given themselves over. Have you heard this before about giving over something? Liz, let's go to you. I just noticed that Paul does not say to stop bad behaviors. Every bad behavior is replaced by a good one. So it's not enough to stop doing wrong things because that creates the vacuum, as Jesus said, and seven more demons come in and make their house. Every bad habit has to be replaced with a good one. And it just reminds me where <laughs> David says, create a clean heart in me, renew a right spirit in me. That only comes from Christ. So those good behaviors that Paul is saying we need to do only come through a renewal of our minds and our spirits. As grandma always used to say, heaven isn't going to be populated by forgiven crooks. We need to be changed from the inside out. So it seems to me that that's Paul is talking about replacing bad habits with good ones. And the change does not happen by trying harder. <laughs> exactly. The change does not happen by stirring the emotion. The change happens by changing the mind. So if you want to understand where the behavior comes from, you need to understand the state of mind and the state of heart. And that's why Paul is concentrating on this. Karen? Yes, I was thinking that the change of mind is that we are loved by God and we're here to love others. At least that's one way of seeing it. And then it changes your whole operating system when that's what you're thinking and feeling all the time. And I met a man and he said his operating system was to think about what he could do that was kind in every situation and then think what was even kinder and do the second or even the third thing. And that's how he kind of approached every situation. And I thought, what an amazing operating system to have that is just filled with love that makes you unselfish, not like the selfishness of the Gentiles and their futile thinking. It's more fruitful thinking. Yes, thank you. So verse 17 says, you must no longer walk 
Now, modern translation will have live, which is the basic meaning. But if you compare this and Ephesus 2.2, what's the significance of the fact that Christianity was first called not Christianity, you know, something with Christ, but was called the way, and that the metaphor for Christian life consistently used in the New Testament is walk. Because I am sure you have encountered that. I could give you examples from my ministry when one of the sentences I have heard so often from the members is, Daniel, but this is not how we have been taught. This is not how we have been accustomed to see things. So the perception was that Christianity means defending what we have always believed, while the metaphor of the New Testament is Christianity is not defending. Christianity is walking, is moving forward. And then he comes to this futile thinking. The Greek word is nous, so that means mind, reason. It means moral perception. Bible uses heart as a place where people do their thinking. So what is the significance of the fact that if you want to change people's short time, you need to excite them, you need to touch their emotions. But if you want to change them long term, you need to change the way they think, how they operate. Sean, there's a real confluence of a lot of forces here. There's a pastor named Paul trying to somehow introduce to his congregants that life will look different now that you are, quote, in Christ. I've been carrying forward this in Christness, which we have covered in previous lessons. And chapter 4, verse 1 and 17, Paul uses this same phrase. And I think he is gently introducing to his congregants the reality of what it means to be in Christ, or at least the English translation that I'm looking at right now says, in the Lord. In both verse 1 and 17, that same phrase, in the Lord. I think as a pastor, tentatively, carefully introducing what I see in verse 17, Daniel, the word that my English translation uses here, you must no longer behave. You must no longer behave like the Gentiles. So there's something very significant about that transformation that will impact what we do. The beginning of that, of course, is how we think, which produces an impact about what we do. And we do know that if we change our behavior, we often change our thinking. Repetitive behavior change can produce clarity of thinking. I think depending on who you are and how you receive in Christness, perhaps behavior modification is a workable and useful tool. I think Paul's been very gentle to not introduce behavior modification until chapter four and five and so forth to lay a groundwork of what it means actually in the cosmic sense to be in Christ and to be redeemed. Yeah, thank you. And the clarity of mind that it brings, being in Christ, the opposite of that is those darkened minds and the darkened understanding and futility of your trying to accomplish something. Nancy? For me, being in Christ and what we're talking about in chapter four, it reminded me of how Paul opened his letter in chapter one. And verse 17 happens to be the same verse that we started with. About his prayer for the people there and for the circle of people he was writing to, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So his prayer validates what you've all been saying, that it's the thinking 
that we may know him is that perhaps being in Christ where we're in union and in agreement with how Christ thinks and how he behaves and how he runs his government. Just like Christ said, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, but they're not anybody's in anybody, literally, but they're all in total agreement. Is that not perhaps the unity that we're to aim for? I like that kind of government and that kind of God. And it's the thinking, just like you said, Daniel, it's the thinking. Yes, let's go to Livius. I don't mean to skip ahead here, but verse 28 is just an amazing example of what it means to have your mind transformed. It says from the ESV, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work from his own hands. And this is the kicker, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is not in the mindset of a thief to share with anyone in need. It's just meditating on that verse. It's really just mind-blowing. Yes, and we will come to this, that the one who was a thief before now needs to be generous, needs to be thinking and caring about others. So this will be the result. But we will come to this in a second. Dan? I was going to follow up on what Sean said and what other people are talking about, maybe in a practical fashion, of how to change one's mind. And that is, I think you've heard me talk about this before, but I just want to repeat it again. There's something called mirror neurons in our mind, and we're geared to learn by being around ideas or people. And so I think we're admonished to spend time with Christ, but I would suggest we should spend time with saints. And I think the more time we spend in both of these things, our mirror neurons will duplicate what we see and we will naturally change. I think the idea that God has put into our minds a mechanism to evolve and change and become the kind of person that Paul is talking about, it's there. It doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be something that we do by our internal strength. God has given us a natural way to change, and that is the time we spend with good people, and especially in meditation with Christ. In verse 21, it says, the truth as it is in Jesus. Yes. And that goes also back to what Karen mentioned. So what is it that needs to flush our minds that you need to be immersed in, to use the New Testament image of total immersion? It's the life, it's the ministry of Jesus how he treated people, and how he treats us in this cosmic reconciliation. Larry? Listening to what Dan was saying, I can't help but think that part of the benefit of the community, it's a place where I can come and I get to practice living the way God is asking us to live. It's kind of like the community of Pine Knoll. We get a chance to practice what we've studied and thought about in a setting that encourages positive growth and sharing. Thank you, Rusty. As Dan was sharing, it reminded me of a study I just read the other day. It was a neuroscientist talking about the brain. He said, the brain is our social organ. So we all know the saying, by beholding, we become changed. And we are so socially affected by influences that we fill ourselves with. And you think of the negative influence of social media that has on many people. But then there's the positive side as well, being with Christ. So thanks, Daniel. Yes. Have you noticed in verse 19, they have given themselves over. Can you see the allusion to Romans 1, that not only God gives over those who do not want to be on his side, who don't want to go in the direction. The result is the sensuality, indulge in every kind of impurity, full of greed. 
here you have the self-centeredness. What do I get out of this? And because of what happened on the cross and the cosmic reconciliation, this will be reversed, as Livius pointed out. So the thief will not only think, what do I get out of this? How do I help myself to this? But how can I be a blessing to someone else? How can I bless other people? Now, the Gentiles might not see themselves in this way, might not agree with Paul, but he is very analytical here and shows actually this is what's going on here. This is how it is from God's perspective. It doesn't matter how you feel about yourself, but you are governed by your self-centeredness and your greed. All right, let's go to verse 20 and 21. But this is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ, you were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So what is the measure? The truth that Jesus taught and embodied and modeled while he was on this earth. And then he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to put on the new self. So what is the metaphor of putting off and putting on? How does this change of mind happen? We have no other way of talking about heavenly realities than using an earthly language. So he's going to use a metaphor from everyday life. Terry? Well, would it be the robe dressing or undressing? Yes, the change of the robe. Now, it's very easy reading from our cultural perspective. Look at some of these celebrities and they have a different dress every few times per day. Now, in the ancient world, normal people, how many dresses would they have? Just one. And they would wear it until it worns out and then at great cost buy a new one. And so this helps you to see about the significance of this putting off something that you are used to and putting on something that is new. It's not just a superficial change. Henry? Isn't that probably in our language today, like switching hats? That yeah. I need to be wearing different hats today and having my hat for this job and then changing the role and wearing a different hat. Will that be probably the analogy for the modern speaking? Yes, definitely. Often we say we are now putting that hat on and we are going to discuss this or that or look at it from that perspective. From And of course, there may be also the sense of comfortable clothing. So you feel comfortable in your old clothing because that's what you are used to. And the new clothing may feel a little bit strange. But Paul says something needs to come off and something new needs to go on. And it has something to do with the lust and greed about the direction, the vector of your life. Sean? Yes, the metaphor seems quite clear as to the taking off the old clothes and putting on the new. What seems, at least in the English translation, not so clear, not just to me reading it, but to many people that I speak with, frankly, who are Christian, most outside of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, as to whose responsibility it is to change the clothing. In the language here, it can be deceiving. And this is a Berkeley version that I'm reading in the English, that you are to rid yourself of the old nature. And there are similar translations that some of my evangelical friends read, and it creates an interesting theological discussion. I had one yesterday, in fact, on this very point. So clarify that for us, Daniel, in terms of how this fits in to this change of clothing and Paul's emphasis here as he's leading up to this necessary change of life, the ridding of the old 
in that uh, context with so much abusive lifestyle. How is it that we today, me today, those of us considering this discussion, how is it that I'm responsible or am I responsible to really make solid effort to change these behaviors? And where your effort is directed to, to make a serious effort. Yes, that is... And, and so the effort needs to be directed to the renewal of your mind, not trying harder to change your behavior because that is not going to work. As Terry pointed out at the beginning of the lesson, that's going only to make you more self-centered or either proud. How come you guys are still struggling with this because I have managed, I have achieved or make you guilty. You know, I was born to be the fuel for the fires of hell because however hard I try, I just don't succeed. And so the more you concentrate on you and your performance, the worse it's going to get. Clothing in the Old Testament is the symbol of sinfulness. And also the change of clothing, a new garment is a symbol of salvation. So you remember the metaphor of our righteousness as a filthy rags and God dressing you in new clothing. Karen said in the chat, today Paul might use metaphor of changing our glasses so that we see the world and others in a different way. And because garments were precious and expensive, people kept them for a long time. And would be very unusual for normal people. We are not talking about the top echelons of the society, but for normal people, they would not have more than one set of clothing. And so it shows the seriousness of the change, the deep going change. But this is the important aspect. It speaks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That goes also back to Romans 12. Okay, Debbie? I love the text, let this mind be in you, which goes back to and includes what Karen was saying. What we focus on makes such a difference. And going back to also what Dan talked about, where the neural pathways of the brain, when we find ourselves thinking the thoughts that we thought previously, and we have looked at Christ and we go, that doesn't match up then we realize we need a new neural pathway. And so we go, I'm not going to go down that road. And we let this mind be in us that we choose a different neural pathway. And we create by choosing over and over again, we recreate the neural pathways in our brain to be able to think as Christ thought. And again, it all depends on where our focus is and what our choices are as to what we're thinking. So sometimes I think we've mentioned about effort. And I remember thinking one time, where should our effort be? And I was thinking, hanging out with Jesus. Our effort should really be focusing and hanging out with the neural pathways that we want to actually adopt. And then we're inspired. I mean, like Adam's lying down there, you know, everything's there. And then he breathes into Adam, inspiration. And that's what we need. We just need more inspiration. And what is it that Jesus wants to teach me today that he was not able to teach me 5, 10, 15 years ago because it would have killed me? As we walk together, as we progress, what is it that my mind needs to be open to today in this process of renewal of the mind? Because if you see Christianity as a defense of whatever was in the past, then you are not open to what God is going to teach you. All right, let's go to Tuesday's lesson or question number four. Livius already indicated, yes, what is significant about verses 25 and onwards? So Livius. Yeah, he just provides some practical examples of how to reorient your mind in some practical examples of that day, possibly, but some of them really, really relates to today. Yes. So let's look at 26. 
in verse 31, he says that all anger must be put away. And in verse 26, it's a command, be angry and do not sin. Now, if anger needs to be put away, why would he command people to be angry? Terry? There's different kinds of anger, isn't there? And there's a very appropriate anger over things that are so harmful to others, an appropriate anger. But an inappropriate anger doesn't do anyone any good, least of all the one who's holding the anger. Okay, so there's a difference between the emotion and the way the emotion is expressed. So anger is something you feel when you are blocked in achieving your goals. If you can't get angry, you are not human anymore. You are a potato. You are a vegetable. So yes, you are going to get angry, but you need to learn how to deal with it properly. And that's why he mentions, let not the sun go down while you are still angry, because then you are not rebuilding relationship. You are not renewing your mind. You are not using that energy that anger produces for improvement of relationship, for addressing the issue. You are using it to attack and bring down someone else or yourself. Julie? Oh, you just said what I was going to say. Basically, we're going to get angry because it's an emotion, but this tells us what to do with it, put it away. And put it away, we figure out ways to deal with that anger. And one of the ways we don't deal with it is to cause other people grief because of our anger. Good. Olivius? I think you're right. It is like a human emotion uh, makes us human, but I think it also is helpful to us because he does say, be angry, but do not sin. I wonder if that's some weird translation, but I think the problem comes is when, if you leave it to stew, that anger turns into an action. And I think that's when it's a problem is when it turns into an action, because when you're just thinking about it, you're like in the state of analysis and rationalization and, you know, emotions are kicking in. So I think it's good recommendation to not let the sun go down on your anger. And I was reminded of the passage that says, if you're angry with your brother, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go make peace with him or something like that. Yes. In Matthew 5, Jesus Yeah. Imagine God is understanding. Can you imagine you are standing up there to preach and then half of your congregation gets up and leaves the room? Now, that would influence your self-perception as an effective preacher. But actually, maybe you are effective because Jesus is saying that worship and the right relationship is more important than the form. The fact that you are sitting there in the congregation listening piously to the sermon. But if the relationships are not changed, what's the point? God doesn't get any blessing from you sitting in the sanctuary. So, yeah, that's amazing piece of teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. Paul says in Thessalonians, how important is work as means of providing for your own needs. Now, imagine you have a group of high schoolers. How would you convince them that they should consider college, that they should get a university degree? What would you appeal to? In other words, what is significant about verse 28? Livius already started us on this one. Wouldn't most teachers say that if you have a college degree, you are going to earn more money? You are going to have a better lifestyle? Notice Paul says in verse 28, the main motivation for the work is not what you get out of it, not the individual profit, but why the thief should work so he can support those in need. Here is an illustration of the change of mind, of the renewal of the mind. Why do people steal? Why do people decide to deal with their difficult situation by stealing somebody else's property or what they own? Terry? So they get something for nothing without having to put any effort into it for themselves. Yes, I need this in order to be happy. If only I had this, this would make me happy. This would make my life easier. 
completely self-centered thinking. And Paul says this change of mind is going to be manifested that the thief is thinking about others. You are in this world to bless other people. You need to be thinking of those in need. And of course, the context is especially those within the realm of the church. All right, Karen? Yes, it's really interesting that recent research shows that relationships that get broken during the day need to be mended and reconciled that day where possible. And of course, we read this in the Bible, and it's certainly good advice. But we now know that if we sleep with a pain of disconnection in a relationship that's close to us, that it can actually lead to anxiety and depression. They first discovered this when teens and their parents had conflict during the day and disconnected, and they tracked the effect on the teenager. And actually, even if the teenager started the problem, then an adult can take responsibility and help to men. So it's really important because now we know the effect it has on the brain and the painful consequences of not resolving quickly. And let's go to Liz Trapp. Anger does produce energy to act. And there are times when we can become angry when we see injustice to somebody or when we see God's character being maligned. But if we have had our minds transformed, then our response won't be to get revenge. It would be to try to alleviate the injustice or to try to give a different impression of God's character. And in that regard, we wouldn't be sinning. Jesus was, quotes, angry when he drove out the money changers, but he didn't sin. And it talks about God being angry. Obviously, he doesn't sin. So there is anger that provides energy and motivation to get up and do something about whatever we are angry with. Yes, anger is used, I think, over almost 400 times in the Old Testament. And the one who is most angry is God. Not once it is implied that it's something inappropriate. One of the reasons why we know that Mark is the oldest gospel is that it says in Mark 3, 5, Jesus, look at them with anger. Remember, he's in the synagogue. And he's already condemned without opening his mouth. Imagine that. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. But they already condemned him. They already know that he's doing something bad. Because he dares to challenge their status quo, their established way of thinking. And that's where he tells the man to stretch out his hand. And he heals him. Because in this process of walking, he gives them a complete new understanding of what the Sabbath is all about. And helping people in need. But they already are looking for excuse to kill him because he dares to challenge their understanding. What they already figured out that God wants and what's the proper way of keeping the Sabbath. But Jesus looked at them with anger. So Jesus is angry. But he uses that energy to bless the man with the withered hand. So the value of anger depends on how you express it. Good. Let's go to Bob. Yeah, I too wanted to speak to the issue of anger. There's anger, and then there's be angry, but don't sin. Well, it seems to me that the anger part of it is don't be angry with one another. At least that's how I hear that. Sorry, Bob. But when we say don't be angry, we are saying don't be human, be vegetable, okay? Yeah, well, and there's a part of that, but we have to be careful with our anger because we're finite beings and we don't know the motives of somebody else, but we often ascribe to them motives that we think that they have. And that's why we're angry with somebody when in reality, that motive may actually not be there. And when I hear, you know, be angry, but don't sin. Well, we can only sin against God. David said, against thee only have I sinned. We don't really sin against one another. We do other things to each other that are almost as bad. But when he says, 
be angry, but don't sin. I think God is happy for us to be angry with him if that's our last resort. Because when you're angry with God, if you at least mention that to him and tell him, you've still got that relationship going and there can be some give and take somewhere. And you might even actually be able to listen to God's response to your anger with him. Because it's better to be angry with God than to just shut him off entirely, because then you just close down an avenue of communication. It's like with the marriage. If people can hear them through the whole street, there's still hope for the relationship. If they stop talking, there's no more hope. Yeah, if the couples are still fighting, at least they're still involved with the whole thing. Okay, let's go to Aaron and then let's move to question number five and the role of the Holy Spirit. I actually thought of the same verse, the Mark 3, 5. And one of the things that I noticed there was that it said he was angry being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. And it seems to me like a big difference between human anger and godly anger is there's a grief, a grief for the other. I think that would be, for me, one of the main factors there. Thank you. So anger as an emotion is one thing. Everybody experiences that. Remember 1904? Ivan Petrovich Pavlo got the Nobel Prize for discovering you don't choose your emotions. Okay, So anytime you are blocked in reaching your goal, you are going to be angry. But the value depends on how you express it. You can express it in a negative way, destroying yourself, like suppressing it or destroying others, destroying property, destroying material things, destroying relationships, or you can use it constructively to use that energy to address the issues that are at hand so that something positive comes out of that. And that's the purpose of those emotions. Let's go to verses 30 and 31. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the community? Question number five. And this is Wednesday's lesson. Isaiah 63, 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he became their enemy. He himself fought against them. Okay, so he speaks about the Israelites who rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. And that's why God becomes angry with them. So if you manifest the behavior showed in verses 25 to 31, what effect is that going to have on Godhead, on the Holy Spirit? It's going to grieve him, which means, by the way, that the Holy Spirit is not the power. You can't grieve electricity. You can only grieve a person. Can't grieve a magnetic energy. So Holy Spirit is a person. And according to Ephesians 4.3, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the community? Why is the Holy Spirit grieved when the behavior mentioned in verses 25 to 31 is manifested? Remember what is the theme of chapter 4? What are the consequences of Christ's cosmic reconciliation? new type of unity and who is in charge producing that unity how is that unity achieved it's the work of the holy spirit according to verse 3 and when this disunity is fostered that brings then grieving or sadness to the holy spirit livius i think it's maybe even more of a serious issue for the holy spirit because it says eager to maintain the unity this is verse three eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit so the spirit requires that unity 
the spirit needs that bond and that unity to be whole. So when we are not unified, when we are divided, that's not together complete. I never saw that there is one body and one spirit. And so I was just thinking that the spirit really is constructed to be one, like we're breaking the Holy Spirit where we're not unified, uh, not in unity. I don't know. What do you think? Yes, it's very important. Now, people don't care much about the church, about the unity, as long as I get what I want, or as long as my perception, my perspective on the issue is recognized. But that shows you don't understand the idea of the body, of the community, why Jesus died. He didn't die for forgiveness of my sins, full stop. He died for me to be part of the new type of community, include me in his body, and that body is the church. And in lesson 10, we will speak more about how is this manifested in the church and how is this manifested in the home. And then end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 with the rest of Ephesians. So it's a new type of community, God's new society because of what happened on the cross. Paul uses a certain approach. So he says that something needs to be put away, but he always gives a positive command and he gives the rationale for it. Anybody wants to say anything about the sealing? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed. Remember in Ephesians 1.13, it was mentioned for the first time. So in Paul's day, a seal indicated ownership and protection. If a document was sealed, you could not poke into it. You could not seal it. Remember when John is crying in Revelation? Why is he crying? Because the scroll is sealed and he has no clue how the problem will be resolved. And then one of the elders comes and says, do not cry. There is a lion that has the power and authority to break the seal. He can do it, but you can't. And then he looked and he discovered that the lion is a lamb. So if you put a seal of ownership, it belongs to someone. And it's also the protection. So what does it mean? that God's people are sealed, that they are marked. Remember Ezekiel 9, the Old Testament background, and then Revelation 7. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Lisa? I believe Ellen White says that to be sealed is to be so settled into the truth that we can't be moved. And if we are settled into the truth about who God is and what his character is, and we are being changed into that, then the Holy Spirit has taken ownership, and we are freely giving ourselves to be owned and motivated by his spirit. So it is through the wooing of the Holy Spirit that we ever come to that place to begin with, where we want to be sealed. And then as we see God's character being revealed, we become that so settled that there's nothing that's going to change us. I know at this point in my life, nobody could do anything to me ever that would change my view of God and the truth that I find in his character. So I feel sealed because of that decision that I've made. I think it is something that you do with rational thought. It's not a feeling. It's a rational looking at the evidence and or coming to believe the truth as you see where the most evidence is. Thank you. So you can see the change in the mind, the process on the mind, how God works. It's interesting that when the New Testament describes the work of the Holy Spirit, it describes it with verbs like understand, perceive, that have to do with mind. Let's go to Sean. Thank you, Liz. Yes, I appreciate very much, Liz, the comment and the testimony there. 
that is quite distinct from the conversation that I referred to earlier that I had yesterday with a very good friend of mine who indicated that he, by virtue of his giving his life to Christ, has been sealed. And that in so being sealed, he is not subject to being unsealed, as it were. And we had a lengthy conversation about whose responsibility, which is why it was fresh on my mind. And I posed the questions in some of the earlier comments as to whose responsibility it is to, as it were, clean up our act, as it were, to make choices that will slowly but radically alter our behavior and shift our consciousness. And we covered the ground very well in terms of, yes, it's a matter of our thinking, our emotion follows, what we focus on is where we will end up. But to this man, the sealing of the Holy Spirit was his choice to accept Christ as his personal Savior. And we did talk about the ups and the downs, of which he admitted having quite a few, but that it did not alter his being sealed. Okay, thank you. Sherry? I was thinking about what you said about grieving the Holy Spirit. And I think often it grieves us too when there isn't that unity. But we may not have much that we can do about it. If unity requires behaving in a way that is not healthy in order to have compliance, if unity means behaving in some way that we're really uncomfortable about, I don't think we can make those sacrifices. So I think, yes, disunity and in a community where everybody's at different stages, may have different backgrounds, may have different expectations or needs. Some may still be like wolves in sheep's clothing. You will not have unity, I think, in many occasions, and many places are not having unity. But what we can do about it is it's a very complex issue. So yes, the Holy Spirit is grieved when we don't have unity, but so are we. Sometimes there is very little we can do about it. And this can be abused, uh, you know, spiritual abuse. So use the Holy Spirit, use God, use the Father, use the religious orthodoxy as a way of enforcing uniformity instead of genuine unity that the Spirit tries to facilitate or create by allowing us to follow and grow the speed each one of us can grow, because you can't enforce. You can enforce uniformity, but you can't enforce unity. And that's why spirit doesn't work that way, because we are all on different journeys and uh, different speed. And that's why if unity is understood that Peter and Paul are going to think the same thing, it did not happen even in the early church. So we will have these differences, but we do not perceive each other as enemies. We can shake hands as they did and say, you are going to work here, I am going to work here. You are going to make this contribution, I can make my contribution. So there is still the space within the body of Christ for everyone to make their contribution. Okay, Julie, and what you just said, Sherry, will be beautifully concluded in verse 32. What is the purest form of imitating God, of bringing unity? Okay, let's go to Julie. Jesus also made a comment very similar about grieving. Basically, when he was accused of healing and doing these miracles by Beelzebub or by the wrong spirit, he basically said, okay, it's fine what you say about me and it's fine what you say about God, but anybody who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And that sounds very harsh. But earlier we were talking about how, and I think this has kind of been said, but I want to reiterate it. Earlier we said that the changing of the mind is what really matters when it comes to 
this putting on of the spirit and putting on what Christ wants us to put on. And the big question really, we touched on it a little bit, but not a lot is how in the world do you change your mind? That's hard. And I think a big part of that, and the major part of that is the spirit of God changing our minds, changing our hearts, but particularly that part of our mind that is going to connect spiritually with God. If we start confusing the spirit, if we start saying things about or moving away from what the spirit is telling us, we're going to get confused messages and we're not going to be able to put on the mind of Christ. It's going to be very confused. And in that sense, we're basically giving ourselves over like it talks about the Gentiles. So I think when it comes to the spirit, very, very important to listen to the leading of the spirit, whether that is an individual thing or particularly when it comes to the body of believers and where the spirit is leading us to mend our relationships. Excellent. Thank you. Jesus says, if you are so set in your mind that you already decided about the source of my ministry, you are putting yourself outside of the influence of God. Even God can't help you. So you need to be only so convinced that you are still convincible, so that you are still within the realm of the work of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you can manipulate your mind so much to that extent that even God can't do anything for you. Almighty God with all his power can convince you. And that's amazing that God created us with this capacity. And you have seen how people can be damaged by the, the bad, broken relationships, families of origin, that they are damaged for life because of what you do to the minds of people. Thank you, Julie. Very important, very important. Olivius? I looked up this word, sealed, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption and with respect to the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of fascinating, the use of this word in the Greek for sealed in the non-biblical world. It says, using seals which identify things by a sign, figure, letter, or word is an ancient custom. The term can denote either the instrument that makes the mark or the impression made, which is kind of cool how if this is the Holy Spirit, he's the instrument that makes the mark, and what mark does he make when he transforms our minds? And I'm thinking that Jesus said, if I go, I will send you another helper. And he said that the Spirit will take what is mine and reveal it to you. And so I think it's the only conduit that we have to be transformed in our minds. And when we grieve him, he's not able to make this mark to leave this impression of the character of Christ. Yep. Thank you. So just as the thief needs to be thinking of others and to be a blessing, your tongue needs to be an opportunity to bring God's grace to people, not to harm them and hurt them. And everything is concluded in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, can you see the value in forgiving someone for your sake? Have you read the stories about something terrible happening to someone in their lives? And then the victim says, I am not going to hold the grudge. They already took away this from my life. I am not going to give them the rest of my life as well. Have you heard saying that unwillingness to forgive, it's like drinking a poison and then being surprised that it kills you, not the rat? Is there a value in forgiving other people for your own sake? Is it important? Yes. And you can't do that unless the work of the Holy Spirit on your mind. Sherry? That reminds me of one of our listeners who was thanking us for the books that we sent them. And he noted that one of them he had given to a prisoner that he often visits and has developed a real relationship with. And then he added as a PS, 
This is a prisoner that had killed his son, who was a policeman. Mm, thank you. Now, can you see the value in forgiving people for their sake? What would be the value? We have seen what is the value for our sake. Can you see the value for giving people for their sake? Okay, Rusty. Maybe they haven't experienced much forgiveness in their life, Daniel. And just the fact that someone can forgive them would be light. Yeah. Be a conduit of God's grace, whether it's your tongue, with whatever you do. That's what the work of the Spirit does for the community. God uses you to model the truth as it is in Jesus. Remember Simon who says, if this man was truly a prophet, he would know about the background, what kind of woman she is. Obviously, he doesn't know that much. He is not a genuine prophet. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he tells a story that nobody in the room could understand, only Simon. Imagine what would happen if Jesus said, okay, guys, take his fork, <laughs> ring it on the cup or the plate and say, now the time has come for me to tell you a few juicy stories from the life of our host. And Simon would be embarrassed at his own feast and nobody for the next 50 years would talk about anything else in that village, only about Simon. And Jesus does not do it because the dignity of the person, a rascal, is important to him. And he tells him a story that he says, you are 1,000 times greater sinner than her. But because she was forgiven a lot, she loves a lot. And your problem is you just don't realize how much God has forgiven you. Is there value in forgiving people for their sake? Of course it is. John. So I think sometimes there is a part of forgiveness where the person doesn't know they need forgiving, right? So there's almost this interesting thing where you forgive for yourself, but you can't let the person know that they're forgiven because they don't actually necessarily see that they have done anything or they don't agree that they have done anything. But for your benefit, it is still important to do so, right? whether the other person understands it or not. So there's a part of it where absolutely, if you can forgive someone and they recognize that it's something that is needed, that they've done something, right? Or that there's something that has been broken in that relationship, then absolutely for them, it's a wonderful thing. But I think there's some discernment there too, because you don't want to be the person that says, I completely forgive you and they look beneficial for you to do it. Sure. And here's the important thing. Paul doesn't say, forgive them for your sake. Paul doesn't say, forgive them for their sake, though we all can see the value of both. He says, forgive them for Christ's sake. Why? Because the purest form of imitating God is kindness. Iris. So what happens when God forgives us is that he is open for new data, for new opportunities, for a new type of behavior to show up, for the past not to define us. It's really, I think, in forgiveness, it's the openness for change, for growth, for new moments. I think when we don't forgive, we're done. We have given up on a relationship, on a person. We say, you are your deeds, or you are that offense and you will never change. And therefore, I have to turn away from you. I cannot be in relationship with you ever again. I think forgiveness is a choice to say, yes, this was wrong, but I think you can show up in a different way in a new situation tomorrow. Your value is not determined by what you do. Your value is determined by the fact that you are the daughter and the son of God. 
I refuse to see you through the prism of your action. I see you through who God wants you to become. Bob? Doesn't Graham like to talk about coming across someone who's forgiven you from something, you know, walking down the street, and whatever reason you feel like you need to cross the street so you don't run into that person again? And yet God treats us as though we have never sinned. And I think the forgiveness, when it's genuine in its purest form, allows the relationship to continue, which is what God ultimately wants. Thank you. Larry? Recently, one of my closest friends did something to me that basically destroyed our relationship. And when it was in the process, it happened on a phone call, and my wife was hearing the conversation. And the irony is, um, it's never occurred to me to forgive him, because I don't hold it against him. Because I understand him well enough, I know him well enough, that I understand the pain that caused him to do what he did. And and so it never occurred to me to retaliate. And so I kept reaching out, trying to make amends. And this person kept thwarting and angrily thwarted those attempts. And it was the first time in my life that I've ever experienced that. And I'm pretty sure that he, knowing me the way he did because we've known each other for almost 40 years, expected me to react differently. And I think Jeannie expected me to react differently. I did. And it wasn't until I reflect on it that it began to help me understand a bit about, because he's never asked for forgiveness. I doubt he ever will. And yet, if he ever did, it's like, I never held it against you. And that's, I think, because... I've changed how I understand God's forgiveness. I understand it differently now than I did before, which helps me to, well, put it this way. It was a traumatic event and it caused me to lose some sleep, but it is not as devastating as it could have been had I have been holding it in and with my prior understanding of forgiveness. So I think there is something that comes to us as a great benefit when we understand how God's forgiveness works that enables us to survive traumatic events that are likely to happen in our life. Yes, thank you. Let's include, Terry, what you said in the chat so that it's very clear to the listeners that forgiveness is not a blank check for predators to come close and keep hurting another human being. Well, unfortunately, this side of eternity, there are some very dangerous people out there. I think that It's extremely important for one's own welfare to be able to forgive someone who has harmed you. But given the current circumstances of the world and how broken people are, it would be foolish to allow that person near you again. So forgiveness doesn't automatically instill trust in the person that harmed you. They would not be trustworthy. If they had the opportunity to come back, they would do it to you all over again. And continue the harm. Yes. Thank you. It's important. And we need to understand this in the context of falsehood and bitterness, in which it is said in Ephesians 4. Otherwise, if you take it out of context, people just want to have a free of jail card to continue doing what they always did because they don't see that anything needs to change in their own life. They are just entitled to, to do what they do. All right. The context is there is a situation in the first century Ephesus with a prevailing culture where 
falsehood, bitterness, and taking advantage of others is prevailing in that society. Like Paul says, because of Christ and what he did on the cross, something can be changed in your lives so that you do not go with the flow, but you can be a different type of community. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit on your mind. It's putting off the old person, or King James Version would say, putting on the new man, this kainos anthropos, the new person. It's the renewal of your mind. And if you don't do it for your sake or for their sake, then you can do it for Christ's sake. Because once you realize how you have been treated by Christ, you can have a new community where the spirit is at work, the hearts of individuals are changed, and everybody can see this was not achieved by trying harder, but because you belong to God. And though this side of eternity, as we mentioned a few times, we will never get a perfect community, a perfect unity, there is the redemption when the bodies will be replaced and the wiring and the neuropath changed. And that is central to Christian hope. And that gives you hope in your present life that God is still at work and the Holy Spirit wants to achieve this type of community. And you and I can be part of that and can ask the question, how do we do this so that our lives are shaped by Christ, filled by the Spirit, and we do not walk in the grave clothes of the past life? Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are thankful for what you have accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we pray that this truth as it is in Jesus and manifested in his earthly ministry, death, resurrection, will influence our lives to the extent that we allow the Holy Spirit to take off whatever is old and unnecessary and bitter and false and harming and hurting us and other people and allow you to dress us and walk in newness of life with a mind that brings blessing to others and behave in such a way that people get a new glimpse of who you are and they will be blessed by walking in the company of people, new people that you created and see your goodness, grace and greatness and praise you because of what we do. This is our sincere prayer in your name. Amen.